Welcome to Beer Me. I'm your host, Sarah Jane. Every week, I will have a different guest on the show to discuss different parts of the beer world. From brewers to importers, educators, this will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. So about a month or so ago, I don't know, time is a little bit wonky, you know, post-pandemic or in-pandemic, however you feel to look at it. Um, I had the privilege of going to Craft Brewers Conference uh, in Minneapolis this year. It was wonderful to see all these great familiar faces again, be among uh, the beer people, my happiest place, and the Brewers Association knocked it out of the park. Really awesome speakers and everything like that. But uh, one of my favorite places to mosey on down to is their bookshop. They usually set up a bookshop of different books that they've uh, published uh, through the Brewer's publication. And I was lucky to stumble upon Merritt Waldron. He was signing his book that was published in 2020, Quality Labs for Small Brewers, Building a Foundation for Great Beer. And I got to chatting with him. And he's currently the quality director at Baxter Brewing Company in the beautiful state of Maine. And many times on this show, we have talked about the importance of consistency and how consistency is a really, really hard thing to strive for. And I thought, who better to come on the show and talk about consistency in brewing than the man who literally wrote the book on quality labs for small brewers? So I'm very excited to welcome Merritt. Waldron to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the kind words. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I also uh, happy to write uh, obituaries, eulogies, you know, things like that <laughs> to make people feel good. <laughs> um, so, well, first off, uh, congratulations on your book. I'm assuming you got to meet many fans and it was really well received at Craft Brewers Conference. Yeah, it was really great. It was uh, actually the first time because it essentially came out right at the beginning of the pandemic and haven't really had a chance to do anything in real life with folks besides a couple webinars. Um, but yeah, the response was great. People were really happy with it. Um, uh, but they said that it's helped them out a lot. So that made me really happy. So uh, that's kind of what I, I strive to do when writing the book. Kind of made, I kind of took it from the approach of someone who may not have taken a science class, you know, since high school or maybe college, uh, but got on their brewing journey and now are brewing great beer, but, you know, maybe need to take it up the, to the next level and start a quality lab. So try to make it, you know, plain English and, uh, you know, tr technical enough to get you to get you pretty far, but not too intimidating. So before we dive into everything that is wonderful about your book, I want to back it up a little for listeners who maybe don't even know what a quality lab is um, for a brewery and why it is important. Could you walk them through that? Yeah, sure. So it could, it you know, could take in all shapes and sizes and forms. Um, the first brewery lab that I started in was wasn't much more than a, a closet. I've actually heard stories of folks. I think up at Anchorage Brewing Company that they literally started in a broom closet. Um, so. You know, I felt I felt pretty good to be in my seven by ten room at first, um, but a lot of the times when you're first starting out on a smaller brewery scale, uh, you're going to be kind of taking the measurements. I call it at line measurements, so kind of 
at the point of where the, the action is happening is where you're taking your quality measurements. Uh, and then as your brewery lab grows, some of those measurements move their way into the lab and get a little bit more precise with some more precise instrumentation. And then, yeah, they can get pretty fancy from there. And what are some things that you are measuring for? So like, what, what's, can, you, can you outline maybe one item that you measure for and how it impacts the final product of the beer? Uh, sure. So uh, we're a slightly larger brewery here up in Maine. Uh, one of the big things we're tackling is uh, ABV, mm-hmm. so alcohol by volume. Uh, so we use a, a pretty sophisticated instrument, a near-infrared spectrophotometer um, that's built into a density meter made by Anton Parr. Uh, so the Alex 500 we use is pretty nice. Uh, helps us control uh well, helps us measure our our alcohol by volume, and then we can then control that in the brew house. So that affects, I mean, your final gravity is essentially, your starting gravity and your final gravity are a big part of that. Um, and that is affects the sensory of the beer. So, you know, not only uh, is it a, a quality control checkpoint that you're trying to hit with your ABV, but it also influences the flavor of your beer because alcohol has flavor. Yeah. And you are checking different things throughout the brewing process, or is there typically kind of one point where you're checking a bunch of things? Oh, yeah, we're, we're taking measurements, a lot of uh, gravity measurements and pH measurements throughout the brewing process, uh, also throughout fermentation. Uh, and then even into final packaging, uh, we're going to want to keep track of what our final gravity is, our ABV is, and our pH. Uh, that'll give us clues if something goes wrong. Uh, over time or if something had gone wrong. And I, you know, I always tell people when they're doing uh, brewing on a much smaller scale, as far as like home brewing, for example, like this is why you always take notes of every thing that you measure and, and every part of the process so that from batch to batch, you can start to get that practice of consistency, um, even in, you know, a homebrew kit or something like that. So I feel like you probably have countless records as well. Oh, yeah. We have a, a lot of records. Um, and actually, there's a lot of ways you can look at it from batch to batch and, and plugging them into Excel. And then you can kind of see how you've, your beer is progressing over time. Uh, it's pretty pretty neat. So for brewers that are maybe a little bit behind in putting together a quality lab, um, or kind of quality practices, what is kind of the bare minimum that you would recommend for, for brewers to begin with? So, yeah, I, I uh, outlined that in my book a little bit. And um, what I would say kind of depends on where your beer ends up. So if you're serving your beer in your tap room only and it never leaves your hands, you can kind of take fewer measurements. Uh, well, not so much fewer measurements, but you can track fewer, fewer things. Um, but if the beer leaves your brewery, then you're going to want to add on quite a, quite a few uh, measurements. I can kind of go through those. So if you're keeping your, keeping your beer in-house, um, you definitely want to be able to measure weight, you know, weight of grain and other hops and everything you're putting in uh, density. So your gravity readings, temperature for sure of your fermentation tanks, as well as, you know, mash temps and all that pH throughout the process. A big one that I would love to see every brewer do is a microscope for yeast cell counting. So why why would that be impact? I mean, why would that be impactful? Uh, so uh, if you can take a look at your yeast under a microscope, 
Uh, you can tell your cell density from pitch to pitch. So um, mm-hmm. you could also uh, identify if whether your yeast is alive or not with a viability check. And then you should be able to hit a target pitch rate. And if you can hit a target pitch rate and you're hitting your target gravities, you should have fairly consistent beer coming out the other end, the end of the process. And why is it more important to take more of these measurements and get more information about your beer if it's leaving the premises? So then you don't have the control over the beer that, that you would have if it stays in-house. So if that keg leaves, that, that's the last time you're going to see that keg. And so if something does happen, if you know there was a microbiological infection in your beer and it leaves the house, um, it's going to be a lot harder to get it back and a lot more costly to, uh, to bring it back. So that's why you want to be a little bit more careful on the front end. It's a little bit, your quality control program is a little bit like an insurance policy. So to make sure that a bad product doesn't get into someone's hands. Uh, and then you don't have to bring that bad product back from your distributors or your, you know, whoever you're serving your beer to. Yeah. And that kind of, that kind of breaks down like the, the way beer is sold. Cause you know, kind of illustrating this a little bit, when you have something in, in just like the brew house, it's coming, you know, it's coming right from your storage area where you probably have a very meticulous uh, temperature control, humidity control. You're hooking it right up to your lines that you, you know, clean fastidiously. Um, and God forbid, if anything's wrong with the beer, all you're doing is unhooking it from that line, apologizing to, apologizing to that guest, getting them a new beer, and then hooking up, you know, cleaning your lines, and then eventually hooking up something else. Whereas if you're sending it out into the world uh, on a distributor's truck, you don't know what temperature, you don't know the care that's going into the transport. And if your product ends up with any kind of complaints, I mean, from what I understand, you're going to be compensating the distributor. You've got a, you know, you might've burned an entire account um, with that experience. So it's, it's a lot of steps you have to recover essentially. If I'm headed in the right direction there. No, absolutely. And nobody really cares about your beer as much as you care about your beer. So they might not be, you know, storing it cold uh, like you would in your own facility. Uh, so uh, certain things can happen along the way that you, you just don't have control over. So you're going to want to try to control that on the front end rather than, you know, having to drive around town, picking up four packs from everywhere you, you drop one off or paying someone else to do that. <laughs> Even worse. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've I don't know if you've ever experienced a summertime in Washington D.C., but I've seen some deliveries happen where they just kind of drop them off and then they just kind of sit in this like humid swamp <laughs> environment, which is just a nightmare to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and you, you work so hard to get it there, but you know, the better you can do on the front end, the the more chance your beer has surviving someone mistreating it. So. As far as diving into putting a quality lab in place in a brewery or even, you know, in a homebrew situation, how does someone navigate what makes sense for that establishment? You know, like what, how does someone figure out like how involved it needs to be? Well, I think you kind of have to set your goals just like anything you're doing in life. One of the first things I did when I came to take over at Baxter is kind of taking a step back and, and thinking about what are our goals here. Um, and I call them quality priorities. And 
the leadership here actually really thought it was a great idea. And they're actually our company goals now. So they also reflect our quality goals. So I kind of pick three, I guess you could say three statements that are important to our beer that I use as like a, a guideline every day. Every time a quality decision comes up, I, I go through the checklist of like, all right, is it meeting this goal, this goal, this goal? Uh, and those could be different for different breweries. Um, right now, I don't mind sharing ours. Uh, goal number one is safe, safety. Uh, so meaning, so that's kind of split into two. Uh, so it's kind of two goals in one, but safety of our personnel. So make sure the people that's making our beer are safe. So they don't go home with all their fingers and toes. And then uh, food safety. So making sure that we're putting out a product that's safe for people to drink. It's a food product uh, at the end of the day. So our, and then our second kind of our number two priority or number two goal would be uh, providing a quality experience. So uh, essentially putting those measurements into place um, that we need. So making sure we hit our gravities, making sure we hit our pH and our cell counts. Uh, and by doing that, that should provide a quality experience uh, at the end of the process. And then our third priority is just continuous improvement. So getting better at it every day and also measuring those. So kind of looking at our KPIs, so maybe CO2 per barrel and can we get better on that? And, you know, whether or not it makes better beer, it'll be either more environmentally conscious uh, or better for our bottom line. Those are our th- kind of three quality priorities that we apply to our decision-making when making decisions about beer mid-process. Yeah. So as far as like how time-consuming this is, like is this, you know, when you when you look at a, a brewery operation that desperately needs to have a quality lab um, or, you know, implement some kind of quality control. And I'm sure you've heard the excuse like, oh, we're just so swamped or, you know, oh, we're just trying to turn out the product, you know, that kind of thing. Like, realistically, like, what is the effort level that someone would have to do to kind of get those practices in place? I think it really depends on size. Um, so I started my career at another great brewery in Maine called Rising Tide Brewing Company. Uh, in Not Portland. too shabby. Yeah, <laughs> they are. They, we we made great beer. They still make great beer. Uh, yeah. But uh, when I first started, I took over for a woman named Haley, uh, and her she had a split role. So she did a lot of quality stuff, but. 20 hours was for quality, 20 hours was for production, so doing seller work. Uh, the advice when I took over for her, she gave me, she said, don't learn how to drive the fork truck and try not to do any production work because we were just small and small staffed uh, at that time. And that was when we were brewing about a thousand barrels a year. Um, but I started there part-time, quickly got into full-time quality role and we were then able to grow our our production from 1,000 barrels to 5,000 barrels of what I would consider great quality beer. And then towards the end, we were sober in around 5,000 barrels. I added another part-time person, so 60 hours a week for a really robust program up to 5,000 barrels. And that's kind of, it depends on where you want to go with it. Up, up until this year, I was the only person doing quality at 18,000 barrels, but that was uh, that's here at Baxter, and yeah, that was really tough. That was a lot, a lot of things to do. But I, I have a lab tech now, and now we're really kind of starting to move forward again instead of trying to keep up. So right now we're at 80 hours a week between the both of us. And is there, or, or rather, are there opportunities for 
other people within the brewery to get involved, you know, like kind of teaching people basic, you know, tasting practices and, and things like that so that you can have other people experience, you know, what quality control looks like. Yeah, I'm a, a big believer in that. Actually, I think I mentioned it earlier when we were talking about kind of quality at the source. So kind of the person that's taking the measurement should kind of, you know, own it as much as they can, because uh, it doesn't necessarily make sense that if I was taking a dissolved oxygen measurement, we hadn't really mentioned that yet. But um, so if I took a dissolved oxygen measurement in the can and I went up to the operator and said, uh, the DO is bad, fix it. There, it's like, yeah, why are they going to listen to me? Or why should I slow the line down just to get a better DO number? For our listeners, what does that taste like in the beer? Like, how, how would that translate? So, so you don't taste it right away, but it, it can quickly make your beer go stale. So tasting a little bit like cardboard or uh, on the extreme side, like a sherry flavor. Get that oxidized. No. Yeah, oxidized flavor. Exactly. So being able to put that measurement in their hands, they can say, all right, well, how can I, how can I get this number a little bit lower? And kind of, it also comes along with sensory training. So if they don't know what oxidized tastes like, or they don't know what the fresh beer tastes like, so they kind of need to be able to compare the two. But yeah, kind of putting that in their hands and empowering them to make a good decision. And I, I think everybody ultimately wants to do a good job. It gets a little complicated because now we're talking a little bit about management, uh, but I guess it's all part of quality. <laughs> but yeah, so try, trying to empower, yeah, I think it comes down to trying to empower the operators to take as many of those measurements as they can. And then what I do a lot of my time with is kind of analyzing those uh, in some spreadsheets and, and whatnot and, and trying to advise them the best way or make the changes that need to happen to, to make the beer better next time or closer to target next time. And, and looping back to quality, you know, kind of looking at what makes sense for your brewery, could you break down kind of, you know, just kind of comparing two starkly different breweries, like, for example, like a farmhouse brewery versus an all stainless steel fa- facility? Like, what would what would the difference look like there? Yeah, there's still it's still a lot of, you know, personal opinion to go into it. I think if if I were to be working at a farmhouse brewery. I might add some micro controls or maybe kind of get into some uh, PCR. So that's uh, identifying microorganisms in your beer uh, using, uh, I'm not sure how to really explain it in less than one sentence, but uh, but yeah, using DNA to, to check your micro load or whatever, whatever kind of microbiological growth you have in there. And this would be specifically for like, you know, non- like kettle souring or anything like that. This would be for like a more natural fermentation process, correct? Or just particular bacteria that or particular yeast that you would work with that you would have to monitor a little more closely. Yeah, I think I, I think that's the best way to put it. You'd kind of want, I, I would want to monitor a little bit more closely to make sure that uh, I'm, I'm trying to avoid diastaticus uh, essentially. So the a gene uh, within yeast that carries the STA1 gene that can break down sugars over time and then lead to, you know, bottle explosions or, or can explosions. Um, so that's why I would probably implement some PCR. But you could also take the other approach where, like, it's it's supposed to be wild, it's supposed to be free, and kind of let it do its own thing. And I kind of love that uh, approach. It's, you know, kind of, it's a little bit more romantic than that way, right? You know, I want it to be, you know, it's, it's natural self. I'm not trying to control it at that point. But... 
because I'm, I think I'm of an analytical mind. I, I would probably want PCR if I had a, like a farmhouse brewery or just some robust micro methods um, in place. Um, I do also have those micro methods in place at my stainless steel brewery, um, but mostly to make sure that my yeast is the only yeast that makes it in there or the only bacteria that makes it in there is the stuff that I'm putting in. So that's why I would use it on the stainless steel side as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure that I'm hitting the intention of the question right now. <laughs> no, you're all good. Um, <laughs> I feel, I mean, I think also when you, when you look at that kind of brewing, you're right. Like there's, there's a little bit of, and, and, and that was kind of like a, a little bit of a generalization. Like when you say farmhouse brewing, it's like, it's the equivalent of saying IPA style. Like there's a huge, um, you know, range of what that entails. And I think, you know, farmhouse brewing has morphed and shifted, especially in the U.S., you know, as we've kind of tried to, like, come up with our own definition of what that is when you compare it to, like, farmhouse brewing in, say, Belgium. So I think, yeah, it's, it's you're going to get a lot of different answers of what makes sense, I think, depending on the philosophy. I mean, on this show, we've talked to people who, you know, do all their, you know, boils over an open flame you know so it's I feel like that would be <laughs> so you like i could see like your eye twitching on that one <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> i've, I've, I've heard some stories so yeah <laughs> there's just and and you know it's it's i'm i'm a definitely a control freak um and so like the thought of doing a boil over an open flame like totally stresses me out because it's you know, it's not exact. There's a lot that can happen. Like, but you know, people still produce really amazing beers with it. So, you know, who am I? Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why that, that those, that goal setting at the beginning of your quality program is important to figure out what is important to you and important to your beer. Cause you know, if you wanted to have that more romantic approach, maybe your three things that you're thinking of every day are way different. Like, how can I be innovative? Or, you know, can, maybe that's one of them. Is this innovative or is this the same old thing? Uh, just as a quick example off the top of my head. But I, th I think mostly my quality program is going to be driven by where my beer ends up, I think. Um, and I think that, you know, I would almost say there's like equal level of skill and art when you compare, you know, if you compare, you know, a classic Lambic style where they've thrown open the barn windows and let the cool air inoculate, you know, the wart. And, um, but then you also look at, you know, something like Budweiser that they somehow managed to have it taste the same, no matter where you are year over year over year. I, I think, you know, you're looking at two different kinds of vastly two different kinds of brewing, but also, the amount of skill and the level of art that goes into both of those, a combination of, you know, science and brewing art and stuff like that. Like they're, they're they both merit that I feel like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're definitely both awesome too. That's, it's really well put. It's really cool how the big, the bigger houses can, you know, have such control over the beer. And quite honestly, I wouldn't have a quality program if it wasn't for those bigger houses uh, and publishing work and being able to do the research that they've done with the funding they've had. And then I could just apply all that to my little old brewery here. So it's kind of that's kind of cool. And then same thing for the you know farmhouse or a lambic, and it just yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> it just tastes so good. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, so that's okay. So I didn't know that. That's fascinating. The bigger houses um, are really open with their research and and share a lot of that information. Um, I'm not sure if it's so much. Well, yeah, I would say I would say yes, yeah. So um, the Master Brewers Association of Americas they have a technical quarterly uh, magazine with a lot of brewing brewing published uh, brewing science published in it, and that's been running since the I think. I think you can go in the archives and go down to back to the six fifties or sixties uh, on the Master Brewers Association. And I mean, even uh, brewers publications. You know, there's a lot of larger craft brewers as well that share a lot of information uh, through the Brewers Association, uh, including myself. I've had a couple webinars through them as well. So there's the information's out there. Is kind of putting it putting it together and applying it to you know help your needs at your brewery. And I think like a big takeaway, especially for people who maybe are not brewing, but are only enjoying beer and like from a guest perspective, like one, when you get a really fantastic beer or you have that beer, that's kind of like your comfort blanket, like that, you know, is going to be, you know, good quality. It's going to taste great every single time you consume it. Like, I hope that you take away that, that, like you have a whole new appreciation for how much work and how much effort goes into it. But also, and I've said this, I've harped on this many times in the show, if you are tasting something with off flavors, it's an awkward conversation, but you got to let them know, you know, like you, you got to say something in the, in the nicest way possible because, mm-hmm. that's, you know. Yeah, that's a tough one. I kind of get on my soapbox sometimes about off flavors. I like to call them unwanted flavor attributes rather than off flavors. <laughs> it's a little bit more of a mouthful. Um, sorry. We don't have to go down the rabbit hole if you don't want to, but uh, I, th- I think you need to, so that comes to another part of the quality program. So if you have a sensory program, you can kind of decide what your beer tastes like. So you could do some description tests, have your panel build your taste profile, and then maybe maybe it's a farmhouse sale. Maybe you make it with Brett and it's got this little funky horsey barnyard thing going on. If that was in a lager, that would be an unwanted flavor attribute. But in your farmhouse ale, that's a really, you know, desired attribute. So, uh, but it's the same chemical compound either way. I mean, I'm not saying not to not to have a conversation with them because maybe you do know that beer and you've had it before. Like, oh, maybe this tastes different. That could be a gentle way to, you know, have the brewer go and retaste his beer. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> you have to set up your true to brand before you can decide what's an off flavor. I've never thought about it that way that like off flavor is maybe not the best descriptive or best word to describe what they are. Cause you're right. Like in some instances, you know, it would be considered an off flavor, but in, in other instances in certain beer styles, it's like totally acceptable or, or even sought after. So no, that's, that's a good, yeah. that's a really good yeah, point. And a nice, and a nice, Eng- some English ales have diacetyl and, you know, and it's quite pleasant in those, but maybe in my American IPA, I don't want that. Or it's like certain levels. I mean, look, I've got like a, a really soft place in my heart for Heineken and I always will. There's a sentimental tie to it. And like, kind of like that little, like, you know, skunky, you know, <laughs> like, yep. you know, I know it's there. <laughs> yeah. Like I know it's there, but you know, it's, it's part of a, it's part of the shtick, you know? Yeah. So, which, you know, in turn makes it hard for me to pick up elsewhere. That's like one of those flavors that I struggle with, but that's a different. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That, that can come with practice or some people are just aren't as sensitive. And that's kind of the fun part of building a sensory program as well. You find out who's sensitive to, you know, which flavor attributes and 
if there is a question, like maybe if your patron does say, hey, you know, there's something a little different about this beer sometime, you know, it kind of smells eggy to me or something. Maybe, you know, you go to your, your taster that, you know, uh, is sensitive to sulfur compounds and, and then, you know, you can kind of tr- maybe identify that. Maybe there is something that just missed your sensory panel because it can happen or it can develop over time. And it, I think it is. I think it is good. Good to have that conversation with folks in a gentle way. Yeah, and, gentle way. And don't go online and 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 bash the beer. <laughs> no, no, that always breaks my heart. But no, you're bringing up a good point. Like, you know, even you know, having your service staff pretty well trained in in sensory evaluation of the beer. And honestly, like when you get one of those um, off flavor kits, like from the Cicerone. And you have a group of people try it. It's amazing what, like, certain people taste it immediately. They can't even drink the beer. They can just smell it. And it's, like, just in your face. And then other people are like, what? I don't I don't pick up on it. I don't, I don't taste that. It's like a, you know, cilantro soap story kind of thing. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's, it's interesting. I, I don't pretend to know everything about sensory. But it, it's, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting field. Uh, and I've definitely been digging into it a little bit more. It's fun, fun stuff. And super useful. Yeah, very useful. Well, Merritt, thank you so much for taking the time to answer all of my questions. For listeners out there, definitely check out his book, Quality Labs for Small Brewers, Building a Foundation for Great Beer. This is published by the Brewers Publication. I can attest as somebody who is comically bad at uh, chemistry that it is something that you can digest. And it's really, really, really useful information. So if you are brewing, home brewing or otherwise, please check it out. And if you do have a chance to be in Maine over the next couple of months, first off, I'm very jealous of you, but uh, definitely check out uh, Rising Tide or Baxter a Brewing Company. Otherwise, we will catch you all later. Uh, please like, subscribe, give all the stars anywhere you have podcasts. Reach out with any questions or comments at Beermy Radio on Instagram or beermeradio at gmail.com. We are always happy to take requests um, and look forward to hearing from any of you. We will uh, chat next time. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.